You're listening to Camayo's Compliance Talk by our in-house compliance expert, Michelle Camayo. Join Michelle on the latest developments, questions, and conversations surrounding employee benefit issues organizations are navigating today. Hi, everyone. It's Michelle from Bullpen and Company. Thanks for joining us this morning or afternoon, depending on where you are. Well, I'm Michelle Camayo. I am the Vice President of Compliance at Bolton and Company. I work with employers on a daily basis and employers that are working to be compliant and have questions. And I have practical discussions with those employers. I'm not giving legal advice. Neither is my guest speaker today. And the also please note, the information comes in so rapidly. The changes and further clarifications have been coming out rapidly as well. So what we talk about today could very well change in the coming weeks. At least some pieces of it might change or some pieces of it might get clarified. So introduce my guest speaker is Jeff Novak of Littler Mendelssohn. First, I want to say, though, Okay, so Jeff is a highly acclaimed shareholder and attorney at Littler. And I solicited Jeff online. This is a true story. Solicited him online. I read every morning. I wake up. That's part of my, my position. I just have to know what's out there. So I ran across Jeff's blog on fmlainsights.com. And I ran across his blog, and I loved it. I liked his style. I thought that the way he set up the information was exactly the way that we want to digest information. So I, I clicked on connect with Jeff and I sent him an email and I was like, Jeff, would you please, please be my guest speaker? So he agreed and he's here today. Jeff, can you give us just a little bit more insight into your area of expertise? Thanks, Michelle, and thanks for inviting me to be on. One thing is very clear from the outset, you have very poor taste in blogs. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, no, not at all. <laughs> but no, it's, it's great to be on and great to um, share some input on this new law with employers that are out there. Um, again, I'm Jeff Novak. I am an attorney at Littler, which is the world's largest employment pra uh, practice representing employers. Um, much of what I do involves the issues we're talking about today, uh, employee leaves of absence. Um, much of what I do is, is in the areas of the FMLA and ADA and helping employers comply with the law in those areas, and then of course state leave laws as well. Um, so as you might imagine, in light of this new law, um, I've been busy because it deals with, uh, in this case, paid leave of absence for employees. So happy to share um, some some of the things that I've been working on with employers that might be a benefit to, to others here today. Yes, thanks, Jeff. So our goal today is to have a conversation that helps employers along the way. So as the hundreds of attendees that we have on the line, what we want you to take away today is is sort of maybe a little bit of guidance, of course, but at this point along the path, we, we want to be your second set of eyes, and we want to have this conversation because I know that HR leaders and business owners, we often read things, and, and you want validation on what you've read, and that is, that is where we can help today, although, of course, we're going to go over the highlights of, of in particular, of FSCRA, 
at which we did in our discussion last week, but we want to also talk about some further clarification and, and hope you take away some, some confirmation that, that was needed in, in what you're doing right now. All right, so the hope is that this weekly conversation provides just a little bit of that validation and guidance. Having said that, let's get into our agenda, what we're gonna talk about today. We're gonna to go over some updates from last week's discussion. Of course, the key topics. And then I introduced this last week, the toilet paper talk. Not a typo. Uh, this makes me giggle every time. The, the reason I'm calling it toilet paper talk is that we talk about relevant issues from last week, things that we never thought would be relevant in April of 2020 that are, that are relevant, much like we never thought there was going to be a toilet paper shortage. We never thought that was going to be a part of our world in 2020. So hence the name toilet paper talk, just where we talk about some relevant issues. And we'll talk about some guidance that we wish we had that we don't. We'll go over some frequently asked questions, and then we will take the rest of the questions that you've submitted today if we have not taken them during the, the presentation. Last week on the, actually during our discussion last week on this um, call, we talked about the DOL had just released a temporary rule the, the night before, and we had not digested all of it. So we're gonna talk about some of that today. There is no new concept, there's nothing new, let me say, but there were a lot of further necessary clarifications that came out of that temporary rule. So that's great, and we'll talk about that further. The DOL also added the questions number 60 through, six, 60 through 79 to their new facts page. And that also really helped guide employers that are now administering these FFCRA leaves. If you do not have the DOL facts page for, for the FFCRA in your favorite toolbar or your bookmark, please do that because they are constantly issuing clarifications there. And the DLS, DOL and the IRS clarify documentation with regards to FSCRA leave. So, <clears throat> excuse me, you must obtain documentation to receive the tax credit, but you have to be careful and not ask for more than what is allowed or what you're directed to ask for. And if your organization is more generous than the law allows, that is amazing, but tax credits won't be available for amounts that, or leaves that are beyond the law. Michelle, that's a really important point on, on the yeah. on the document the documentation piece. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the the DOL has in its regulations has kind of watered down the requirements. As you might imagine, this is a law that you know, we're dealing kind of an emergency mode here. So there's a recognition that employees may not be able to provide the kind of medical certification that employers otherwise would be able to require under the classic FMLA. So that's that's a it's a good point to make that when you say you can't ask for more than than what's allowed, make sure you employers out there, make sure you understand the um, the new rules with respect to how an employee requests leave under this new law, what documentation can be required. You don't have to take the employer's word for it. There is some documentation requirements, but 
it's far less onerous than what we see under the, the classic FMLA. Yeah, thank you, Jeff. And in, in this, you saying that brought up a, another good point that, uh, that I'm seeing is that sometimes there's a disconnect between the team that is administering the leave and the team that is filing for tax credits. So what I think that means in practical matters is that if I am the HR administrator and I'm administering this leave, I'm not always going to be so concerned and thinking about the fact that, oh, can my employer apply for a tax credit if I do this or if I don't do this? Now, sometimes there's that, a little bit of that disconnect because as an HR administrator or, or uh, HR team member, you're not, you're not thinking about that portion of it. But we want to put the idea in your head, as Jeff said, just kind of you want to marry the two. I mean, when you're administering a lead, if your organization wants that tax credit, then you do have to, to follow the, the documentation that's outlined in the IRS. I know we have a lot of employers that operate in LA City and in the, in, on the line. So this is Los Angeles, of course. And LA City just signed an ordinance into law, or Mayor Garcetti did. And it's a supplemental paid leave ordinance. Um, this is for employers that have 500 or more employees who um, work within the city of LA or employers that have 2,000 or more employees nationally and also have employees who perform any work within the boundaries of LA. The city of LA boundaries are, uh, are important here. That's key. So you want to make sure you, you know, do you, does your organization employ people that work in the city of LA boundaries? So you want to make sure you establish that first. And if your employer satisfies those requirements and it's a covered employer and this is paid sick leave for employees if they worked from february 3rd to march 4th of this year and performed any work then they could they are able to take some paid sick leave i'm not going to get into all of the details here i'll release a blog and uh, later this afternoon or tomorrow morning and you can read over all those details for employers with employees or locations in San Francisco, there is some good news. Normally, this is the time of year that the employer has to submit the HCSO annual reporting by actual, actually April 30th is the deadline. That's been canceled. The city has canceled that. Later on today, I'll also be releasing a blog that, that notifies all of our employers that the HCSO annual reporting has been canceled. Some of you on the line may not even know what that is. If your employer is not subject to the healthcare security ordinance out of San Francisco, then this information does, does not apply. It's just for those who have, who have to make healthcare expenditures under this ordinance. So let's get into the key topic at hand. That's SSCRA. We've got some highlights that we've gone over. Let's go over it again. It's helpful to hear this information, you know, two, three, four, five different times before it actually sinks in. I, I totally understand that. I work the same way. So SSCRA has two major provisions. They're two separate major provisions that affect employers. 
emergency FMLA, and emergency paid sick leave. So those are the two separate ones, emergency FMLA and emergency paid sick leave. Emergency FMLA is really for only one reason, and that's those unable to work or telework because they have to care for a minor child if the child's school has been closed. So that's pretty simple so far. Group health plans need to be maintained, which is per regular FMLA rules. Under emergency paid sick leave, group health benefits must also still be maintained. The DOL clarified that in one of their facts. And the DOL released that temporary rule last week, and that's where they stated that the group health is really going to be your medical, your dental, or vision. That's how we're all interpreting that. And they must remain the same for employees under the emergency paid sick leave as if they had remained actively at work. So the key takeaway here is under either leave, your employees' group health plans must be maintained as they were prior to going out on that leave. Both of these provisions are applicable to both the private sector employers with fewer than 500 employees and applicable to all uh, governmental entities. The last few weeks, I've seen many employers that were small, that are fewer than 50 employees, I've seen many of them say, we're not subject to FSCRA leave. We are filing for that exemption. And the, the regulation does not allow that employer to be fully exempt. It's a narrow exemption only under a few of the qualifying reasons, or one of them really, which we will talk about. But please know that if you're an employer and you have fewer than 50 employees, that you are not completely exempt from FFCRA. So please do be aware that, that you do have some obligation there. Both of these provisions mandate paid time, of course. Both provisions allow for the exclusion of employers that are um, healthcare providers or emergency responders. And, and one of the facts that we'll go over, I have all the details on how that is defined, but it's also on the DOL site, which is where I got it. And of course, employer tax credits are available under the FSCRA paid leave. So the idea is to make the employer whole. So not to boost the employer up, but to make them whole for providing these leaves. I've definitely had more than a few employers who are, who are upset, who are saying, how am I supposed to do that? I'm, I'm struggling to keep my doors open, and now here I am having to provide this paid sick leave and, and figure out how to do that. Now, how am I going to pay for that? Well, the employer tax credits are there, and the, the philosophy, or not philosophy, but the idea behind it is that, it, that it, you'll break even at the end of the day. Michelle, one uh, one point to make on on this slide. One of the the most common questions that I'm getting, and I'm already seeing it as a question that's posed by one of your attendees today. Um, mm -hmm. What about shelter in place orders? Do they um, provide for an employee to take leave? And my my answer is generally no. Um, that that these shelter in place orders, business closure orders do not allow the employee to take leave under this new paid leave law. Um, and we don't have time to, to, to dive into the details of the wording, but um, the statute on one hand seems to suggest that 
perhaps shelter-in-place orders may be covered uh, by the law. The DOL, however, the Department of Labor, over the subsequent weeks after the law was enacted, pretty much shut the door, though, on, on these shelter-in-place orders. And it's a bit of a controversy now between some uh, Democratic senators who have now complained to the DOL uh, about this. We may see some changes um, to, the, to the rules in the future, but I wouldn't count on them. The long and short of it is that um, the, the regulations make clear, along with the DOL's FAQs that they've issued, make clear that an employee who is subject to a, uh, a quarantine or isolation order, you know, these shelter-in-place orders, may not take sick leave where the employer does not have work for the employee as a result. Um, you know, so the, the, the DOL, for instance, gives an example of a coffee shop, a coffee shop who, uh, which is either closed due to business closure orders or because of the downturn in business. And, and they now have uh, either reduced hours or sent their employees home. Their employees might even um, be subject to the state or the local shelter in place order. Um, that that is not going to be good enough. Bottom line, that's not going to be good enough for them to take leave under um, either portion of these laws, whether it's paid sick or paid FMLA. Great clarification there. Yes, it's, it, that is a good point to make. We will talk about that just a little bit more as well. But what you're basically, what I hear you saying is that the key is, does the employer have work for you? And if the answer is no, then that is where the, that's not a qualifying reason for that leave. Exactly. Exactly. Yep. It's good to know that we're still getting these questions. I, I feel like that's one that I've answered many different times, but I also know that's one that the, if you, if you, if you read the technical jargon, which of course Jeff has, because he alluded to this, the technical jargon behind this is complex. And so it's nuanced. And and so every time you hear it, you may hear someone say it and put it in a different light. So hopefully maybe we'll put it in a perspective that, that it that it starts to make a little bit more sense. All right. Let's look at emergency FMLA under FSCRA. That is the that's one of the two provisions. The employee eligibility, so it's the employee has been employed for at least 30 calendar days and um there's only one reason. There's only one qualifying reason for taking leave under emergency FMLA. If, if, and that is if the employee is unable to work due to a need to leave for, need for leave to care for the son or daughter under 18. Last week, we had just gotten the clarification from the DOL that as the employer, you can request special documentation and you should to get the tax credit special documentation for those children that are 14 and over. The documentation is pretty simple. It's just uh, pretty much a specific statement from the employee state stating why they need to provide care for someone who is 14 and over or for one of the children 14 and over. So the documentation is simple, but you do want to request that the employee provide that to you. And so we're moving on. The more complex, because there are more qualifying reasons, is the second provision, which is the emergency paid sick leave. 
the employee eligibility is a little bit different here. So it's employees that are, are they're eligible regardless of how long they've been employed by the employer. Um, and the employer cannot require an employee to use other paid leave. You see the reasons here? It, it really all has to do with being, being um, or having contracted COVID-19 or someone close to you contracting COVID-19, or if you're subject, the employee, not the employer, if the employee is subject to a federal, state, or local quarantine or isolation order related to COVID-19. Other than that, all of these reasons are, are, you know, if the employee experiences the symptoms of COVID-19 uh, or is contracted, if the employee is caring for someone who is either under an isolation order or um, has been advised to stay home. Uh, and the same reason, there's a duplicate reason here, the employee is caring for a son or daughter where the school or place of care has been closed. That is the same reason under emergency FMLA and a lot of employers, when this first came out, there was a lot of uncertainty on how that works. And, and now, and most of you probably already know this, but now if the employee goes out to care for a son or daughter where the school is closed or the child care provider is closed, the employee takes leave under emergency FMLA and the emergency paid sick leave. So that, and the paid leave stacks on top of each other. It, Michelle, a couple couple of thoughts on on this. Um, again, one question that's arisen. I, you know, I talked about shelter and police orders. Another question that's popped up though um, on reasons two and three here. Uh, so your second and third mm -hmm. bullet points. What you know? What what about the employee that that wants to take leave because they're scared? They're scared of uh, contracting the virus. They don't necessarily have a medical condition, um, nothing in particular, no symptoms, but yet they're worried. They're worried about being exposed. Uh, can they go home? Uh, can they take leave? And will they get paid for that? Um, no. I mean, the, in short, the answer is no. Uh, they can't take leave under, under this law simply on that basis alone. Even if they were to say, I've got a medical condition that um, puts me at risk of of contracting the virus and the and the impact that it might have on me. Even there, that doesn't necessarily allow them to take leave under this law. Now, as you see under reason number two, if a healthcare provider has advised them to self quarantine, that may be a different story. And that could because that could be because the employee has a med an underlying medical condition. So you have to tread carefully on that one. It's not sufficient alone for the employee to say, I've got X condition, I need to take leave. That, that's really not it, but rather it's my doctor has ordered me to stay home, has advised me to stay home. And of course, we can get written documentation of that, but you know, it, it turns on that guidance rather than the employee just saying, I'm worried I need to stay at home. And as to number three, now, the reason number three here, this is the third bullet point, keep in mind, too, that it's not enough for the employee just to have symptoms of COVID-19. It's not enough for them to have a fever or to have a cough and to take leave as a result. Now, you may not want them in your workplace, and there, there's plenty of reason for anyone who's sick to not be in the workplace right now. 
it may not necessarily be a reason to take leave under this law and for the employee to get paid for it unless, as you see here in number three, they're seeking a medical diagnosis. So the employee has symptoms, that's one part of it, but the second part is that they actually have to take affirmative steps to seek a diagnosis from, from a physician. Right, and speaking of the healthcare provider being advised by a healthcare provider, and you mentioned documentation, Jeff, and, and I, I, I still see this question pop up, it, it, and so I want to emphasize that it's not, that documentation that you need if someone has been advised is simply certification from the employee. It, or a statement from the employee, it would not need to come from, the certification itself does not need to come from the doctor. So I wanted to make sure that that was clear as well because I have had some employers ask me, well, they don't have a, a um, they don't have any type of certification from the doctor. And when I look over the DOL facts, then that's, that's not one of the requirements that it come from the doctor, just a statement from the employee. Okay, so let's look at, speaking of documentation, let's look at this. The documentation requirement for an employee to take one of these leaves is, I, it's twofold. It's one, the IRS needs the employer to maintain documentation so that the employer can claim tax credit. But on the other side of that is the DOL, who should be working, obviously, uh, with these IRS, the DOL says, if your employee wants to go out on leave, you, here is what they need to provide you. And it, it, even though they should be exactly the same, the way that you look at, which lens you look at it from, might sound different to you. And right now, the documentation from the IRS it has been released. They've released a set of facts. And... This is on their IRS page. Again, this is one that I would bookmark. I have bookmarked it myself. You can see the link here. And the questions number 44 through 46 address how should an employer substantiate eligibility for tax credits for qualified leave wages. So maybe your payroll manager is, is uh, the expert on the IRS documentation or whoever is applying for your tax credits. And the HR administrator is an expert on how it reads on the DOL facts website because that is how you administer the leave and what documentation you need from that standpoint. All right, we'll move into the CARES Act and the, the official name is Coronavirus Aid, Relief, and Economic Security Act. Um, so we're just going to call it the CARES Act. This was that $2.2 trillion dollar, <laughs> trillion dollar, dollar uh, economic stimulus bill. It's just it's crazy. It was signed in the law of May 27th. It's referred to as phase three. So you might hear that called phase three. Phase one is one that kind of snuck in there without all of us really, really comprehending it. And that's because it did not affect us directly. That was an $8.3 billion bill supporting coronavirus vaccine research. And the second phase was FSCRA, of course. And now phase three is the CARES Act. I've heard talk of phase four, but I, I haven't seen any movement myself. Jeff, have you seen any movement or or details behind phase four? Or do you, 
or are you like no nothing seen much nothing yeah, no thanks. i've i've not i've not seen anything I'm, we're, we're waiting on news yeah so we will see on that the cares act i know this is could be old old news for some of you but if you're just tuning in to this weekly discussion i don't want to forget to say it maybe you need to hear it again over-the-counter for drugs and menstrual products is back. Well, I don't want to say it's back for it's back for drugs and menstrual products is brand new. That was never included in over-the-counter. So this is for HSAs, HRAs, and FSAs. I've had an HSA for it seems like um, many over a decade now, actually. So when I heard this was part of the CARES Act, I just immediately latched onto it and. and said, I need to tell everyone I know this is the best news. It's so great. It's not, I mean, nothing that's happening during this time is great. So let me back up off that. But it's at least, it's welcome news. I'm just, I'm so happy to hear it. Um, I, I, so I have an HSA. And if you have an FSA or HSA, you also get that debit card. So I went to CVS last week. And I was out of allergy medication. So I thought, oh, I'm going to be the guinea pig. I'm going to see if CVS has updated their merchant codes on the back end so that I can now just swipe my HSA credit card or debit card. So I went to CVS, stood in line, uh, went to the cashier, and I said, oh, have you, do you know if you've updated your systems yet to account for the over-the-counter being back? And the cashier looked at me like, what are you talking about? So I just said, no, just ring me up and let me slide my card. And then it might decline, you know, if you haven't done so. So I swiped that it was declined. But that just tells me that the the systems are just still need to be updated. I'm sure the larger retail organizations, this is going to take some time. So I haven't tried it this week. Maybe some of you all have, and maybe you know if it's if it's going through or not. But other than that, what I do is I take my receipt and then I can go online to with my um, bank and I can submit for reimbursement if I want to. So it's still eligible for reimbursement even if you can't swipe your card at this moment. The CARES Act all also uh, included a requirement that COVID-19 testing be provided at no cost sharing. So there's no cost sharing for testing. This includes self funded plans as well. So if you have a self-funded medical plan, you'll want to ensure that you're providing this testing with no cost sharing. For fully insured plans, they make it easy on us, right? The carriers do because they're the ones that have to make sure that that's happening. And of course they are. This expires at the end of the public health emergency. And the CARES Act, this is a huge one probably more for your business owners and your CFOs, your controllers, um, and maybe even your in-house tax experts. The, the payroll protection program born out of the SBA. So I, I have seen that certain politicians are trying to revise the amount available for these loans, saying that that $350 billion is going to run out very, very quickly. And I'm sure they're right. And so what they're trying to do is they're trying to revise the amount without having to go through legislation, having to have, to have it passed. I've not seen that they're successful yet, but I think this is early stages for that. What, what we've heard here at Bolton from some of our employers is that banks are prioritizing the current loan customers first. 
we even know that some banks have said, at least early this week, some banks were not even wanting to issue the loans because they didn't feel comfortable on how to, to do it correctly. And, and reading on this, I, I agree, but more guidance is definitely needed. And the money isn't, hasn't run out yet, but it is expected to run out. So the payroll protection program and the SBA loans is something that is out of our purview. I mean, this is really, I've talked to several business owners and they're, they're talking with their bankers, their lenders, their CPAs, their tax, uh, their accountants and, and whatnot. They're not necessarily talking to their benefits broker unless, of course, you need help calculating those healthcare costs. And, and that's where we would come into play. We can provide assistance. As we finish up with our highlights of the key topics, you know, FSCRA and the CARES Act, there are a few things that I want to ensure that we emphasize. Please, please pay close attention to guidance that's released by the DOL and the IRS and any other government agencies. And I uh, post blogs or in compliance alerts every time there's a new a set of new facts that are meaningful to our employers. I'll let you know that way. But it is also as you're administering these benefits, you want to make sure that you're that you're on top of that as well. And in the in this unprecedented time, we're living in an area where we're living in a time where there's a lot of gray. Not everything is going to have a simple, short answer. Not everything's going to really have an answer that we all agree on because of the gray area. So right now, that not, not, not all the answers are going to be readily available, even though I feel like with FSCRA, I feel like they've issued a lot of clarification in the past week, a lot of guidance. So maybe we're getting close to having all the answers there. But there, there might be a few areas that are still a little bit gray. Well, it's time for toilet paper talk. I decided that there's only so many times one can say toilet paper on a serious compliance discussion or during a serious compliance discussion. So here I've just shortened it to TPP. This is where we're going to discuss relevant issues that, that we're seeing from last week, that we're seeing from employers. And, and this is hopefully helpful to you because we have, we're hearing, we hear from hundreds of employers that we can kind of tell you, all right, these are the issues we're seeing. So we're still seeing adding and dropping coverage. We still have a lot of questions around Section 125 rules. Is it okay to allow someone to enroll in your plan? or someone to drop the plan? Is it okay to, um, even if there's not a, a, a qualifying event under your Section 125 rules, is, is that okay? We've not gotten further guidance. The answer is the rules have not changed. And so when we're looking at whether or not you can allow a change, even though there's not been a qualifying event, the, the technical answer is, no, the, the Section 125 rules still stand. But the, there's that other answer that you may have heard last week, and it's not the answer. I don't want to say the answer in case the IRS is listening. The other perspective that an employer could have on this is that we're in the middle of a public health emergency. And it's important to take care of our employees. 
and individuals during this time. So you might exercise some flexibility under these rules and, and hope that the IRS would understand that you're doing this for the good of your employees. And, and uh, as an employer, you might take that stance and you might feel comfortable allowing those changes under the law, even though the law don't, doesn't support it at this time. If you were to ask me as the VP of compliance, I will say that the Section 125 rules will not, do not have a qualifying event that allows for a change, but I'll also let you know, like, hey, you may want to exercise some flexibility during this time, but you have to be comfortable absorbing the risk, assuming that the IRS is going to come audit your organization and not give you some leeway if something like this were to occur. And the carrier rules, carriers are opening up special enrollment periods and they're saying, hey, if you want to, if your employees want to enroll, we'll allow this special enrollment period without a qualifying event. Employers that take pre-tax deductions have to follow Section 125 rules. So because of that, there's not been a qualifying event right now under the Section 125 that would allow an employee to join mid-year even though the carrier says it's okay. But the carrier does not have to ab abide by Section 125 rules, so keep that in mind. The carrier rules don't always align with your Section 125 rules. So I know a carrier just announced today they were extending the special enrollment period, and, and I can't remember off the top of my head, maybe HealthNet, maybe it was Anthem, but one of the carriers said, hey, we're gonna extend the special enrollment period um, for employees to be able to add coverage during this time if they waived prior. And just keep in mind that if you allow that change under your Section 125, there is no, docu no law supporting that change, but we just cannot imagine that the IRS is going to penalize employers for something like this. FSAs, got a lot of questions about FSAs. Are, as employees are temporarily laid, temporarily laid off, our employers are asking, what do we do about this FSA that's in place? Uh, the first is you want to check your plan document for the eligibility qualifications. So if an employee goes out on a short-term leave of absence, which is essentially a temporary layoff, what does your plan document say? Is that person still eligible? Are they eligible for six months? They, you know. You want to find out what your plan document states as far as eligibility qualifications, and then you can you can proceed accordingly. For FSCRA, I've had this question a lot, and Jeff, maybe you've seen this question already. Furloughed and laid-off employees are not eligible for for FSCRA. Those employees access can can access unemployment, so that's their avenue. It's unemployment. Yeah, no, you're right. No, you're you're absolutely right. Um, and didn't mean to cut you off there. Um, no. One or two questions even been raised this afternoon um, on that issue. If uh, in the case of furlough, in the in the case of reduction, uh, even for a short period of time, layoffs, uh, those employees subject to furlough or layoff, they are not eligible to take paid sick leave or, or paid FMLA leave. Yes, thank you. Yep. 
hear that question a lot. And this is a question that I feel like a lot employers are, when they first heard about the FSCRA prior to having all this guidance, they they thought that, oh my gosh, I just I just laid off 200 employees. As if that's not bad enough, now I have to provide them with FSCRA paid leave? And the answer is no, no, you do not. We've gotten a lot more clarification on that. These employees are not eligible for the FSCRA paid leave. The other issues I'm seeing, we already talked about, when someone decide, when someone wants to voluntarily self-quarantine without a doctor's order, that is not uh, an eligibility, or excuse me, that's not a qualifying reason under, there has to be a doctor's order. Another question I've gotten is regards to whether or not the leave is retroactive. It's not, it's for leave taken starting April 1st. So if the employee is eligible for the leave under the act, the employer must provide it beginning April 1. This is not affected by whether the employee previously went on leave. So what that means in a practical matter is that if someone is out on leave today and it's for a qualifying reason, even if they went out, say, March 15th, the employer still needs to provide that paid leave starting April 1. If it's for, of course, if it's for one of the qualifying reasons, and of course, this assumes that you are subject to FSCRA. So um, I know at this point we're kind. Of, I know at this point I've kind of made the assumption that you understand whether or not your organization is subject to FSCRA, uh, but maybe not. So let's let's take a moment here. And Jeff is a, a great person to have on the line with regards to that. Jeff, I know you, you and I were talking earlier about. Uh, what you're seeing, which is questions on, well, which employers are covered by the law. Would you mind kind of expanding on that for a moment? Sure. Yeah. Employer coverage here is is a bit complicated because it's not it's not like the traditional FMLA. It applies to any private employer fewer than 500 employees at the time that the employee is going to take leave. So. You know, under FMLA, the, the classic FMLA, we've we've had a different definition of how you um, define an employer covered by by the classic FMLA. Here, under this new law, it's a it's a snapshot in time, and that snapshot is literally a head count that you have to take virtually every day, because that we look at that number. Are you below 500 on any occasion when an employee seeks a leave of absence under this paid sick or paid FMLA law. So keep that in mind. Generally, all public employers, I don't know if we have any public employers on the phone, but generally public employers, public agencies are going to be covered uh, by this law. Very few exceptions for federal employees or um, members of the executive branch of the federal government. Otherwise, public employers are generally covered uh, by this law. There's also um, a common question with respect to related entities. So you may have a parent company along with a bunch of subsidiary companies. Um, that is, uh, number one, talk to your counsel. Talk to your employment counsel because this is potentially a complicated issue as to whether these um, all of these companies are integrated 
and under the FMLA, under this paid leave law, we use the term integrated employer. Are all of these entities integrated employers such that you should count all of them together? Uh, and when you do so, often many of these related entities bring you above the 500 number. <laughs> so you're not covered by this law anymore, but you've gotta be careful about how you approach this analysis. You gotta be careful of the ramifications that that decision has in the future and whether or not you hold yourself out as an integrated employer in the future or not. Um, so all, all things to discuss with your, with your employment counsel to make sure that you're getting that right. Thank you, Jeff. So I want to I want to also um, ask what if if we have employers on the line that don't necessarily have employment um, counsel uh, uh, for whatever reason, or maybe they're looking to transition. Is this counting employees or and related entities or and integrated employers? Is this something that you also as part of your expertise? Is this something like I could pass on your contact information and have employers? contact you would that be sure sure yeah I'm, I'm okay. happy to help this is okay. I've been neck deep in exactly this stuff for the past month um, so yeah it's it's what okay. uh, what I've been working on with a number of our clients yes anything to do with the clients ask, of the FFCRA okay great okay that's good to know because I, I know you're if anyone were to look up your your bio and look at your FMLA insights blog and it's in you're almost famous, Jeff. So I wasn't sure. If, do you have time for the little people? I, <laughs> I think you're a liar. <laughs> I'm not. Not a liar, just a fan. <laughs> All right. So those those employers, if you're listening on the line and you you need some, you need someone to help you uh, navigate, you're looking for employment um, support. Please feel free to contact me afterwards. Okay. Um, all national, so I'm switching gears a little bit from FSCRA talking about L some issues I've seen or some things I've seen. I, last week when we talked, I said that most national carriers are covering in-network testing and treatment of COVID-19 with no cost sharing. Um, that's now all of our national carriers have come out and said they're covering treatment as well. So. We know that covering testing is required by law, federal law, actually, even if it was only state level before, now it's federal law. But we didn't know that treatment was going to be covered, the no-cost sharing. So I wanted to make sure everyone knew that all the national carriers are covering it, the treatment with no-cost sharing for their fully insured line, fully insured. And uh, that is in-network. So if you have a PPO program or an HSA, which is essentially a PPO, then uh, you have to, the testing and treatment has to be in-network for that to be covered with no cost share. So some good news there. And again, with, the, with regards to the CARES Act, because at Bolton and company, we are insurance brokers. We see a slice of this. So we're not CPAs, we're not lenders, we're not bankers, <laughs> whatnot. We see a little bit of piece of this as far as when when your organization it wants to uh, is, is applying for a loan, you might come to us and say, okay, we need to calculate healthcare costs. How can you help me? How can you support that calculation? So we're seeing a lot of questions come around for that. Also, Bolton does have relationships. Um, 
with banks. And in fact, we have some employers who are banks as well. So if we still have some employers have, who have yet to make a connection with a bank, then you can reach out to, if you're a current Bolton client, feel free to reach out to your, um, your team at Bolton. Or, and if you're not, you can always just reach out to me. We can provide you with a few references. What the rest of the, the discussion will go back pretty quickly, and then what we'll do is going to wrap up with your questions that you've submitted that we have not yet gotten to. The guidance wish list, I'll spend just a few moments on this. We still want to see some guidance on the Section 125. We want to see the IRS or the DOL, we want to see them say that it's okay. We want to have that in writing. We don't have it in writing right now, but we want to see it. In addition, we want a little bit of direction on what to do about the, the measurement periods during this time when you have to furlough an employee. Uh, extending COVID grace periods would be really great to see some guidance or, or um, maybe a regulation or something supporting extending COVID grace periods. I did recently see a step in the right direction. It doesn't mean anything right now. All it means is that there's been a step in the right path. I saw an effort to rally support in Congress for a bill that addresses supporting group health insurance premium payments, federal subsidies for COBRA premiums, uh, new funds or loans that are specific to preserving that access to health benefits, so specific to that, and then easier access to the individual market. So I've started to see some buzz and I've started to see that there are groups out there that are trying to rally Congress to put a, a bill on the floor that includes some of these things. So we continue to hope. Keep your fingers crossed, please. Jeff, anything that you're seeing? No, I think uh, I think that's good coverage there, Michelle. Okay. All right. So commonly asked questions, and then we go into your question from today. A company that has fewer than 50 employees, uh, granting emergency FMLA would be a hardship and difficult administratively, but the business would continue to operate. Can that particular employer deny leave to an eligible employee? The answer is maybe. Before you deny leave with regard to this narrow exemption, if you're fewer than 50 employees, I would highly recommend you consult with an employment attorney um, or, or, or someone else, that, some other legal counsel. The employer has to demonstrate that granting the leave would jeopardize the viability of the business as a going concern. You see that in quotations. The DOL has promised that there's going to be some forthcoming regulations with regards to this. I have not seen it yet. And note that this narrow exemption only applies for the reason of an employee taking FSCRA paid leave due to childcare or school closures. That's the, that's the narrow exemption. Only for that one reason. But if you look at emergency, if you look at the emergency paid sick leave, there are five or four or five other different reasons that the, that the employer still needs to comply with. Yeah, that's that's a really good point, Michelle. Um, I echo your concern. This really is, think of it as a very narrow exception. Um, you really have to show uh, significant financial impact to your organization 
to be able to obtain an exemption for, as you point out, a fairly limited um, part of, of this law. It still doesn't cover the other portions of the paid sick leave law. So if you have an employee that needs leave because they've tested positive, because they have symptoms, um, because they can't work related to um, you know, their own condition or they're taking care of a family member who's been quarantined, you know, it's not going to cover those situations. So it's, it's fairly limited to begin with, but the, you know, we, we are looking for the DOL to give us more guidance on this, but we have to assume that it is going to be fairly limited in scope. All right, next one. We talked about this as well. An employee went out on leave starting March 15th for qualifying reason under the lease. Do we have to pay the employee? Well, the leave's not retroactive, so no, you don't have to pay them from March 15th to April 1st. But if they're still out on April 1, then the the leave would need to be the employer cannot deny the paid sick leave. We talked about Michelle. Michelle also a related, I'm sorry, a related question on that um, that's popped up from one of the attendees today is, um, can you um, if if you pay more than what the tax credit allows? So let's say you pay when someone should be getting two thirds of pay, but you pay at 100 percent. Can you can you take the full um, tax credit? Can you take 100% of a tax credit? And, and uh, the answer is no. Uh, you can only take the the tax credit for what is allowed under the law. So if the law says you pay the employee at two thirds of their regular rate, that's your tax credit that you take. You can't, even though you may top that off to 100% of pay, either out of the kindness of your heart or you allow the employee to use some of their paid leave, their accrued paid leave on top of the two thirds to get them to 100%, still can't take that tax credit for anything above two thirds. Thank you for making that distinction. So shelter at home orders, would statewide shelter at home orders qualify as the quarantine or isolation order that triggers the emergency leave? We, we did talk about this at length. It's possible, but it is not likely. If you're living somewhere in New York City, I, I've heard, I do not know for sure, but I've heard that, that um, they're, they're in, in a much greater lockdown state than in other parts of the country, maybe. So it's possible, not likely. If the employer does not have work to offer due to an order, that is not a qualifying reason to, for the employee to be eligible for leave. And the, the technical reading of the regulations behind this is, is complex, it's very nuanced. So I wanna keep it a little bit simple so it's more intuitive for you as the administrator of these leaves, that it's just simply if the employer doesn't have work to offer and it's due to one of these statewide orders, that's not a qualifying reason to take for the employee to take leave. That might help. The employee had a reduction of, of pay, but not hours. Can they make plan election changes? Those that are familiar with Section 125 rules know that a reduction of pay in of itself is not a qualifying event. So there are no permissible status changes that speak to a reduction of pay, but again, it's certainly understandable if an employer wants to go outside the rules due to the public health emergency. Just know that if you do, you might be introducing a level of risk because the IRS 
or the DOL has not released any guidance making it okay. Next question, what provider and first responder employees can be excluded from eligibility? This is a very long answer. The reason it's here is because I wanted you to have the slides afterwards. So in the post-webinar email, you will get a copy of the PowerPoint and you can reference this. Although I, I do wanna state that you'll have it here, but it's also in the DOL facts and that's the official citation. So I would absolutely follow the DOL facts and, and reference that question there. That's, that if it's ever updated, you'll, you'll be able to reference those updates. One thing I want to note here is that the DOL did clarify that it, it's any, any, let's say for example, it's a doctor's office. Well, what about the, what if the person is not a medical provider? What the person is the maintenance person or the receptionist? It's anyone employed at these, at the doctor's office or the hospital. So the DOL clarified it's anyone that's employed there that the, uh, they are excluded from eligibility for emergency sick leave. What records do you need to maintain when the employee takes paid sick leave or expanded family and medical leave? This is a very common question. We want you to refer to slide seven. We did talk about that. The DOL FACTS website also provides clarification on documentation, as well as, of course, the IRS FACTS website, because that is where you're going to claim your tax credit, and you have to have sufficient documentation to claim that. The employer is not required to provide EPSL or the paid emergency family or paid EFMLA if material sufficient uh, to support the tax credit have not been provided. Or you're not required to provide it if you don't have the, the documentation that's outlined. This one is not my area of expertise. <laughs> uh, Jeff, maybe, maybe yours, but definitely not mine. I only have it on here because I got, I was asked this question so often during the first couple of weeks, can an employee refuse to come to work because of fear of infection? The answer is complicated. Uh, and the, the OSHA um, outlines some of this, employees are only entitled to refuse to work if they believe they're in imminent danger. And then there's some details there as well. I'm not the expert on this. I will not be able to answer any any questions regarding this, but it is a question I've been asked many times. Yeah, and that's that's kind of the fine line that we're walking right now um, for the for the person that comes to you and says, "I'm I'm worried about contracting the virus. I'm worried about being here at work." Um, generally speaking, I don't think that's going to be good enough, uh, particularly where you can show that you have taken measures to keep the uh the workplace the facility wherever this employee is working to keep it clean um and to protect against the 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 virus um you may be able to show that there are no cases there are no symptoms even um but we are walking a, a fine line here and and there there has been some initial litigation already um raised filed by uh employees who are taking issue with this um, this kind of scenario where they're going to the employer and they're seeking leave. The employer says, no, you, you've got, you've got to work. And, and they are making claims, um, along these lines. And, and so th this will be a, 
a heavily litigated area, but if you're taking proper precautions, uh, you can generally tell your employees that unless they have an underlying health condition and they're being advised to stay home, that you do expect them to be at work. All right, I have some resources for you on the page right before we take questions. I know we're over the 11 o'clock hour, so um, I understand if you need to drop off, but we will get to your questions next. The resources here to follow up-to-date regulations um, or just some information, you can subscribe to our blog here at Bolton. If you're a Bolton client, please feel free to contact your Bolton team. I definitely recommend just year-round even subscribe to Jeff's blog. I told you all how much I liked that in the very beginning. And this is where I found Jeff and where I became a fan. is <laughs> the FMLAinsights.com blog. You can look for the subscribe button, which is on the right-hand pane about halfway down the page when you go to fmlainsights.com. You can subscribe to Jeff's blog, and if you wanted to talk to Jeff further, you could also uh, email him if you think you have, um, if you have an opportunity to, to um, need his expertise. Okay, uh, time to take questions that we have not already answered. Give me just a moment. I'll pop those out. Yeah, and um, you know, I've addressed a number of these questions that are being asked on some recent posts on my blog. So I would certainly encourage you to take a look at um, what I've written there over the past really two weeks um, at fmlainsights.com. It addresses a number of these questions because they're related to uh, employer coverage and furlough and um, some documentation issues. Um, you know, what does the employee have to show to take leave? So a number of these are are covered in those articles. Um, okay, there's great. a question here about um, mm -hmm. about healthcare um, providers and emergency responders. They are exempt from both laws, but it's at the discretion of the employer. So keep that in mind. Um, so if you are a healthcare employer um, and you employ these healthcare providers or emergency responders, you ultimately have the decision to make whether to exempt them from this law. You can provide them benefits under this law if you want to, um, but what the law, both portions of the law is allowing you to do is to exempt um, the, either of this kind of broad category of individuals from either law. I've also had the question, could we exempt them from certain parts of the law and not from others? So um, could I exempt them or not provide benefits to them if they need to care for a child, but I would allow them to, to take paid leave if they got sick with COVID-19 or they had symptoms? Um, yes, I think the, the answer is yes. Uh, the DOL hasn't opined specifically on that issue, but what they have told us is to be judicious in taking that exemption. So what they're essentially telling us is look for ways to find coverage for your uh, employees in these situations, but you ultimately have the right to um, uh, decline paying them paid leave in these instances. So you, you could, um, bottom line, pick and choose as a result, I just, of course, would not 
pick and choose between employees. You know that you're providing it to Joe, but you're not providing it to Susie. <laughs> um, you want to maintain a consistency across the board. I have a question here about FSA daycare I can answer really quickly. If an employee no longer needs daycare because their children are now at home, can they cancel? Um, this one, let me frame, I, I'd rather frame it this way. If your child, because this is almost 100% of all daycares, daycares in, in, in schools have closed and after school programs are now all closed. And this becomes a change in cost that creates an opportunity for the employee to um, stop their dependent care FSA contributions to change them. And so, for example, uh, I had to do this myself because I had two seven-year-olds at home and I no longer have to pay child care for after school. And so I notified our administrator here at Bolton and I let her know that I needed to stop my daycare contributions for the, the dependent care FSA. And that is allowable. They are allowed to do that. Someone said, I heard under, I heard from another webinar that you could allow an employee to enroll in the special enrollment period under the Section 125, but the premiums should not be pre-tax. That is, a, that's, we didn't talk about that, but that's, you can do that. That circumvents the Section 125 rules. Section 125 rules only exist in the event that something's pre-tax because the IRS is saying, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Employer, if you want to do a pre-tax deduction or any pre-tax vehicle, you have to follow our rules. But if you want to go post-tax, the IRS rules um, regarding that don't exist. So yes, you can definitely do a post-tax deduction for those that choose to enroll in the plan during the special enrollment period, and that eliminates any risk under the Section 125. Thank you for that comment. Okay, I have one here that I can take. In terms of the emergency FMLA, the DOL website says children must be 18 years old or younger. However, there was a mention that the age bracket was changing. I want to clarify the age bracket has not changed it is the fact that if some, if your child or the dependent is 14 or older, the employer will ask for special documentation, which essentially will be a statement from the employee describing the special circumstance as to why they need to go on leave due to someone who, one of their children who is 14 or over. So the age bracket did not change, it's, it's the documentation uh, the additional documentation was imposed. And I think what the, the question also might be getting at, what about an adult child? And I think there was, yeah. and maybe this is what um, the, the question is getting at as well, is um, what, what is the definition of child? Uh, originally, there, there were some different forms of, of the definition of child. Um, and the DOL in its FAQs, ultimately, and, and in the regulations as well, ultimately chose the definition that we have under the classic FMLA uh, regulations. So it is a child under 18, and Michelle, to your point, there is, there is that special requirement for uh, kids 15 to, to uh, uh, over 14 years old. But for that 
child who is 18 or older, um, the regs also cover children in that category, but only if they have an ADA disability and they're unable to care for themselves within their, their daily life activities. So keep that in mind. I mean, very, again, very narrow, but it, there is a possibility that your adult child could be covered if, for instance, their school is closed or their, or, or their daycare is closed, but we are talking about uh, disabled adults who are unable to care for themselves. Yes, thank you for that clarification. So I have a question. What's the link for the DOL facts? The link is actually, um, it's probably not practical to, to just say it out, all out because it's pretty long. But if you Google DOL SFCRA facts, it should take you right to that page. You might, you might have to do a little, a couple additional clicks, but it's, it's fairly intuitive. And then, of course, afterwards, I can send the actual link. But you can you can find it fairly easily if you if you Google DOL FSCRA facts. Checking to see if we have any final questions. Uh, where do we find the blog? Someone asked that fairly early on. I assume this is Jeff's blog. It's fmlainsights.com. And Jeff, that takes them right to the blog, right? As soon as they put that in their in the URL. Exactly. Yep. Yep, just uh, fmlainsights.com, and it'll take you right to the blog. I have a question here. My understanding with FMLA also includes that some employees who are able to telework but are not able to work their full hours due to child care responsibilities, then they would be eligible for some benefit from FMLA to make up missed hours. Um, not FMLA, so uh, you know, I'm going to get technical, emergency FMLA, an emergency paid sick leave are the provisions that we're referring to. If an employee is unable to, who can telework, but they can't telework the full eight hours because uh, they have children at home, um, could they, are they eligible for these paid sick leave? I think that that is the question. And, and yes, the, the, the qualifying reason would be that they can't work because they are fulfilling their child care responsibilities because there's been a school closure or a child care provider closure. Mm. So in a general sense, that I, I think I, I could think I can answer your question in the general sense, which I did, but maybe there's some details behind that that might make the answer more nuanced. Yeah, and that's that's generally it. It's it's not a high threshold here. Um, the the one additional factor that you may consider pushing back on is whether there's there's uh, a suitable person to care for the child. So um, that's kind of the second prong. So number one, you you have to care for the child because of the school or daycare closure. But number two is there is no other suitable person to care for the child, meaning um, the other parent, uh, meaning the usual daycare. Or child care provider um, so it's not enough for the person to just say I need to care for my kid because the school is closed well the next question that you can ask as the employer is um, whether there is any other suitable person and, and that's what the reg says uh, a suitable person to care for your child and their response may be well both of us work out of the home um, so um, I have to I have to care for the child. My wife or my husband, my spouse can't care for them. 
so I am the one. Um, and there may be an excuse as well, legitimate excuse as to why the typical, usual ch uh, caretaker is not available. A question, is it true employees can simply self-certify uh, their main child care provider? Hmm, I thought I was gonna be able to read this one, but I'm not, I'm not sure what it's asking. Uh, so let's look at it, let's look at emergency uh, paid leave under FSCRA. Can the, is it true that employees can simply self-certify that their child care provider is closed? Uh, they have to provide, and I'm going off, I think this is right, Jeff, correct me if I'm wrong. They have to provide some sort of email or statement from the child care provider that's showing that they're closed. Uh, it could be an email from your child care provider saying, hey, we had to close, something of that nature. Yeah, that's exactly it. An email, a text message, a printout of a website indicating that the school has been closed. That's the kind of documentation that you can require. Okay, and then the, the question also goes on to ask about unemployment. Can that person collect unemployment without having been terminated? Well, unemployment is not, not my area of expertise, but I don't know that unemployment is available to an employee for this reason. I, I have not seen that as, as one of the reasons. But if we're talking about I, emergency uh, paid sick leave, then yes. Sorry, Jeff, go ahead. You know, I, 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 missed, I missed the first part of the question. So there, it's not, unemployment is not available to them for what? For uh, if, they're in, if they need to take care of their, their child. They need to stay home to take care of the child due to school closure or child care closure. Oh, right, right. Yeah, they, they wouldn't be able to take unemployment count. All right, that is it for us, Jeff. I cannot thank you enough. I really cannot thank you for your expertise. It, uh, it was greatly needed as I focus on the benefits world for the most part. So really appreciate your time and everyone have a great rest of your day. Thanks, Michelle. Thanks, Thanks everyone.